Well, thank you for having me today. I appreciate being here. Appreciate H. Appreciate all you guys and what you're doing here in Louisville, right? Is that how you say it? Louisville? All right. I had people at church back home trying to steer me wrong, telling me I have to pronounce it Louisville, and I'm like, I know better. I know better, because I will. <laughs> that is not right. Um, so uh, the resurrection, historical evidence, that's what I want to look at this morning. And um, there are many different ways to get at this information and to uh, come at it and, and to understand it and to unpack it. Um, and the way I'm doing it is something that I call the creedal defense of the resurrection. And that's because what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at the creedal statement in 1 Corinthians 15 and use that as my guide, my outline. Um, it lists four facts there. And then with those four facts, I just kind of want to give some of the historical uh, information and context that supports those facts. And so that's kind of the game plan this morning with this. So uh, there, there is a historian, uh, Dr. Paul Meyer. He taught history for 50 years at uh, Western Michigan University. He retired in 2011. And uh, he had a very interesting statement about history. And he says this, that uh, many facts from antiquity rest on just one source, while two or three sources in agreement, generally render the fact unimpeachable, okay? So I want us to kind of keep this in mind this morning while we're going through some of this evidence uh, and, and looking at some of the facts and the supporting evidence for those facts. So, again, many facts from antiquity rest on just one source, he claims. But if we have two or three or more, then it's usually unimpeachable evidence. And where I want to start is I want to read uh, a short passage in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. I'm going to read verses 12 through 19. And the reason I'm reading this is because Paul here places a lot of emphasis on the resurrection happening. And he's going to say some things here that, that if the resurrection did not happen, then we're wasting our time. And so he says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those of you who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so Paul links several things here to the resurrection. He, he says that if the resurrection doesn't happen, that hasn't happened, then your preaching and your faith are in vain. Your faith is worthless. You're not even forgiven of your sins if the resurrection hasn't happened. 
And we are most to be pitied if our hope is in something that doesn't exist. If all we have is this life, then we're most to be pitied. So let's go back and look at this creedal statement that, uh, that Paul uses. And this is a very early statement in the, in the, in the life of the church. Um, some scholars date this creedal statement going back to anywhere between six months to 18 months after the actual event. And that's not even Christian scholars who date that. That's skeptical scholars who date this creedal statement going back that far or that close to the event. So 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through the first half of 6 and then verse 7. And it says this, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. So there's four facts that Paul mentions here that I want to highlight. And they are these. That Christ died. That Christ was buried. That Christ was raised. And that Christ was seen. So he was dead. He was buried. He was raised. And he was seen. These are the four facts that I want to look at this morning. And so, uh, I got it here. Yep. Well, my nice imagery. We've got to get it up there, right? So you can see it. So uh, let's go ahead and look at this uh, first fact here. The, the, the idea that Christ died. The idea that Christ, that he was dead. Um, now, these facts are, are, can be divided into... Uh, two main categories, uh, he was dead and he was buried, would be pre-resurrection, that he was raised and that he was seen would be post-resurrection facts. So the pre-resurrection facts, if we remember what uh, Dr. Paul Meyer said early on, he said, how many facts, or how, yeah, how many, how many facts do you, that does most ancient evidence rest on? One, right? And if you have two or three or more, you're on pretty solid ground, right? So how many facts do you think that we have both in biblical text and outside the Bible, if you were to guess? Five? Nine? A hundred. Wow, that's a lot. hundred. Um, the, answer, the answer is actually five for each, so ten. We've got 10 different sources, 10 independent sources. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to stop and go through a lot of these scriptures that I'm going to put up here. I'm just going to show them on screen. So feel free if you want to kind of capture those to, to snap a picture of them or, or however you wish to do that. If you've got a photographic memory, that's probably helpful too. Um, all right, so the biblical, the biblical sources, and there are five biblical sources and the biblical sources are these, maybe. Biblical sources are these that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Acts sermon summaries, and in the creedal statement. Now, I know H said that I'm about a year from finishing my PhD, and you probably think I can't do math because there's six items up there. <laughs> um, but this is not the case because the way I count sources is by the author of the work, 
And so Matthew, Mark, and John, those are individual. Luke wrote both Luke and Acts, so I count that as coming from a single person. And then we also have the creedal statement that was independent of all of them. And so there's five biblical sources there. Um, And all of these verses here are talking about Jesus dying on the cross, okay, at the crucifixion, all of these verses. Um, We also have this very interesting statement that's in John 19, 31 to 34. Uh, And here it indicates that uh, what's going on in this passage is uh, you've got the Individuals on the cross, there's at least three of them, right? Jesus and the two, and the two thieves. Uh, the, the Sanhedrin come to the centurions and they say, we want you to break the legs of the people on the cross because that will speed up their death. And um, in this passage, it specifically says that when they get to Jesus, they notice he's already dead. And so they do not break his legs, but they do break the legs of the other two. And instead, what they do with Jesus is they uh, spear him in the side to ensure that he's dead. But they, they do not break his legs, and that's, and that's significant. Um, and then if you want to see why they were really wanting to speed up the death, uh, there's a couple of reasons. One, it was Friday. It was Passover Eve. The next day was the Sabbath. In Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 to 23, it says that if someone is hung on a tree and they die, and you do not bury them, then you defile the land. God brings a curse upon you. And so the, the religious leaders are not wanting to take the risk of defiling themselves and defiling the land. And so that's why they're requesting the legs to be broken of the crucifixion victims so that they can bury them that day. And, they, and it doesn't jeopardize the Sabbath and Passover feast for them. And so <clears throat> this is why they're, they're doing this here in this passage. Then, then we get to the uh, non-biblical uh, support. Oh, wait, no, no, no. Before I do that, I want to look at this. This is, uh, this is Pilate. Uh, these are all the verses where Pilate confirms that Jesus was dead. So Joseph of Arimathea comes to Pilate in each of these four uh, different passages uh, asking for Jesus' body for the burial. And Pilate first confirms that Jesus is dead before he hands the body over to Joseph. And in all those four passages, Pilate confirms that he is dead. And then we get to the non-biblical sources. Uh, Josephus. Uh, Josephus writes in his Antiquities that uh, Pilate condemned Jesus, a wise man. Um, Tacitus, in his Annals, uh, says that Pontius Pilate put to death the Christian's founder, Christus, which is Latin for Christ. Um, Lucian of Samosata, he was a uh, Greek playwright uh, and satirist, uh, and he had a play called The Death of Peregrines, and in this he's satirizing the Christians, and he talks about how uh, they uh, killed their leader. Marabar Serapion was in prison. He writes a letter to his son, and he talks how the Jewish people killed their, quote, wise king. And then in the Talmud, which is the Jewish uh, uh, 
kind of like commentaries and, and, and things like that on their laws and their scriptures, um, they say that Jesus was hanged on Passover Eve. And so even they talk about this. Now, all of this is interesting, and even skeptical scholars, uh, biblical skeptical scholars will also talk about uh, how if there's anything that we know about Jesus, we know this. We know that he died. And so here's a few of those. This is um, Gerd Ludeman. He's a New Testament atheist scholar. <clears throat> and he says Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. Paula Fredrickson, who's an American historian and a religious scholar, she says that the single most solid fact about Jesus' life is his death. John Dominic Crossan, also, a, uh, he's an ex-Catholic priest and a New Testament scholar, and he says Jesus' death by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate is as sure as anything historical can ever be. And then the bad boy of the New Testament skeptical scholars, Bart Ehrman, who has written quite a bit on the historical Jesus, says this, that the crucifixion of Jesus by the Romans is one of the most secure facts we have about his life. And so even the skeptics will accept this. So really quick here, let me do a summary on this. Um, <clears throat> that uh, we've got five biblical sources. We've got five non-biblical sources. There's several places in the Bible or in the Gospels where it talks about uh, Jesus' death, uh, Pilate confirms it, um, his legs are not broken. One of the objections that often comes up, though, is that the Romans say, or, or, or skeptics will say, well, the Romans weren't medical professionals, so they don't know if he was really dead. Maybe they just took him off the cross early and then put him in the grave and he revived, and those types of things. And I can object to that, to their objection, <laughs> because... Uh, I remember when my mom was in hospice. I mean, I'm not a medical professional, but I could definitely tell the difference when she passed away when I was in the room. Uh, there is a stark difference between someone who's alive and someone who's not. And you can tell. And so I think that's a very poor objection. Um, <clears throat> all right, so that's, that's on the death of Jesus. So how about... The fact that he was buried. How about the fact that he was buried? Um, again, that he was buried. We have this mentioned in multiple uh, places in the Bible. Again, we have five sources, the four Gospels, the Acts sermon summaries, and in the creedal statement. And uh, here we also uh, have... Some interesting things that I want to point out specifically about the four Gospels and, and what they record about the burial. Each one of these Gospels mentions something a little bit different about uh, the makeup of the tomb, what the tomb looked like, and, and things. And here are some of the, the things that we can lift from the text to understand what the tomb looked like, a, a kind of a description of the tomb, that it was cut out of rock and that a large stone was used to cover the entrance. 
So that's one thing. Uh, that the entrance was small enough that when you got to it, to look in or to go in, you had to duck. So it was kind of John and, and Peter, they have to kind of duck before they go in. Uh, the inside of the tomb was carved in such a way that at least two people could sit in it. So when Mary comes to the tomb in Mark, there are two people or angels sitting inside. Um, and then uh, there were also grave clothes that were visibly laid out, and the head covering was folded up and placed to the side. And so there's something about, so, so we have some description about the tomb. So why is this important? Um, well, it's important because uh, Jody Magnus, who is also a skeptic but is an expert in first century tombs, um, has, has, and she's written quite a bit about this. Um, she talks about the different tomb styles from this period of time. And there are three different tomb styles. One of them is called the Kokum. And the Kokum tomb style, if you kind of think of our modern-day mortuary, where you, where you have, uh, they wouldn't have had doors, right? But they would have had these uh, holes or these slots carved into the wall. And what they would do is that with the dead body, they would take it and they would put it head first in and slide it into these uh, niches in the wall. Um, and those are the Kokum style tombs. And uh, they had more architecture than just this, but, but it's almost like our, our modern day morgues are kind of modeled off of that in a sense. Um, then there's also uh, another style of tomb called the Acrosolias. And the Acrosolias look like this. Uh, they would have a niche carved into the wall, and then the body would be placed in that niche. And, uh, and, and then the third type of tomb, which I don't have a picture of, but it's very similar. It's called a bench-style tomb. And a bench-style tomb would have just had, instead of having a niche carved into it, it just would have had uh, kind of like a bench carved into the rock that goes all the way around the three walls. So the description that we have in the Gospels about what the tomb looked like are very much in line with either an Acrosolia tomb or a bench-style tomb. And so it fits the archaeological evidence that we have. Um, and, and we also know uh, quite a bit about the uh, burial, Jewish burial rituals. Uh, Jody Magnus is also written on this. Um, now, some people think it's odd that Joseph of Arimathea, who's part of the Sanhedrin, would go to Pilate to request the body of Jesus after he was crucified because he's seen kind of as a criminal in that, in that light. But in fact, in, uh, in Jewish uh, law, if the Sanhedrin condemned you to death and you were put to death, it was up to the Sanhedrin to collect the body and bury it. That was part of their job. And so, and so it's not unusual that Joseph would have gone and asked for the body. Um, that, that's very much in keeping in line. And you're thinking, well, okay, but they're the Jews and the Romans were the ones that executed them. Aren't they kind of at odds with each other? Well, Pilate's always wanting to keep the peace. And unless an insurrection is, going go is happening... Uh, Pilate would have been more than uh, willing to go along with 
the Jews being able to fulfill whatever type of laws that they needed to feel, fulfill in order to keep the peace. And so it's not also unheard of for the Romans to allow the Jew to, Jews to collect the dead uh, after they've been executed. And so that also is fit, fits in with what we know about that time period. And then finally, there are some other uh, rituals that we know of. Um, if there was time, they would usually wash the body. Uh, but Jesus was taken off the cross pretty close to, to uh, when the sun was going down. And so they wouldn't have had time to do that. But we do see that in Acts where there's a dead body and it's cleaned, it's washed before uh, it, it, as a preparal for burial. Um, also in Acts, uh, the, this idea of wrapping a body in a cloth, in, in a linen, also shows up in Acts when Ananias dies. Uh, the first thing that the young men do before they take Ananias out to bury him is that they wrap him in a cloth. And so uh, th this is also part of the uh, burial practice and ritual. And speaking about the cloth, um, uh, in Matthew 27, we're told that it was a clean cloth. In, Math in Mark 15, we're told that it's a linen cloth, the same in Luke. And in John 19, 38 to 40, we're told that there it was linen clothes with spices and John specifically says, as was the custom of the Jews. And so he's, he's pointing out to his readers that this was customary of how we bury our dead because he was writing to a non-Jewish audience. Now, something very interesting about the burial stories is that there are zero competing burial stories in ancient tradition. The only burial story that they knew of for the last 1,800 years, or the first 1,800 years, was this one, that Jesus was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. It's only been in the last 100 to 200 years where skeptical scholars have started to question if that was the case. But in the ancient story, there are no alternate burial stories. And I don't have time to get into what some of these others are. If you want to ask me afterwards, I'd be happy to talk about some of those alternative stories. Um, but I don't want to do that here at this time. So, um, so the description of the tomb and the burial in the, in the biblical record matches what we know in archaeology. Okay? Um, the burial rituals described in the biblical text matches what we know from the historical record. And this is the only burial story from ancient times, is that he was actually buried. Um, I should also mention one other thing. Uh, Jody Magnus, doing her research on first century tombs, they've discovered about 900 tombs uh, ranging in that, in that time frame, and they all fit one of these three styles. So, so it's pretty... It's pretty secure. We, we, we have a pretty good idea of what the tombs look like. Okay, so this is all the post-resurrection facts. How about the, oh, those are all the pre-resurrection facts. I can get my pre's and post right. Um, now we're going to look at the post-resurrection facts. 
which are that he was raised and that he was seen. So he was raised. Um, N.T. Wright, who is a uh, New Testament scholar and wrote like a crazy 800 pound, I was going to say 800 pound, it's an 800 page book uh, that I had to read during my master's program on the resurrection. And he has this to say about the actual wording of the resurrection. He said, for pagans, Jews, and Christians in the ancient world, the Greek words anastasis, which means resurrection, and egero, which means raised, always concerned a bodily physical resurrection. An empty tomb, all right, so, so, under, so hear me on this. An empty tomb does not mean resurrection, okay? But a resurrection means an empty tomb, okay? You, fo- you following that? An empty tomb doesn't mean resurrection because there's all kinds of reasons that you could give for why the tomb is empty. But if you're claiming a resurrection, then in this culture at this time, whether you believed in the resurrection or not, a resurrection meant an empty tomb because it meant the physical body was resurrected. Okay? Um, and, and it would have been a completely foreign concept to these people if you talked about resurrection only in a spiritual sense. That doesn't mean it didn't have a spiritual component to it, but when you say that somebody was resurrecting, you meant that they were bodily, physically being resurrected. Um, the Greeks would have thought that way as well, even though they would have thought the idea of resurrection was completely dumb. But they would have understood what you meant. They were all wor- everybody was working off the same understanding of what resurrection means. So, <clears throat> so what kind of evidence do we have to support the resurrection? Well, first we have the women witnesses, um, and that's all in these verses here. It was the women who were first at the tomb, uh, Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary the mother of James, uh, Salome, the other Mary, the women. Um, There's a bunch of different uh, names and women named here. Mary Magdalene actually is mentioned in all four accounts. Um, Mary, the mother of, jo- of James, is mentioned in two of the four. Um, now, one of the things, and you've probably heard this in the past, but one of the things about women during this culture at this time, uh, their, uh, what they would say in, in terms of being a witness was uh, not considered to, to have any weight. And this wasn't true just of the Jewish culture. It was true of the, of the entire Mediterranean world culture. Um, that if, if women were witnesses, then essentially it didn't really mean anything uh, in this culture. So, so one of the ideas here is if the apostles were making up a story, would you make the women the primary witnesses? You wouldn't, right? Because that... That makes your story harder to convince people. Um, and so you wouldn't do that. And I think, I think you can kind of see some of the bias possibly in this. Because if you go back to the creedal statement that I read earlier, they name Peter and James. And Paul also includes himself. But they don't mention any of the women in the creedal statement. And if you look at the Acts summaries, or the, the, the sermon summaries in Acts, 
none of the women are mentioned as being the first witnesses, but they are included in the Gospels, which should be an indicator to us that what they've written in the Gospels is true and accurate because they were telling history. They were telling what really happened. Um, All right. We also have uh, the biblical record here of the idea that he was raised. Again, in these five biblical accounts. And uh, there's something to notice about uh, these accounts. If you were a follower of Jesus and he died, and then you go to the tomb, and the tomb is empty, what might you think? Yeah, somebody stole the body. What you wouldn't think (laughs) is that he was resurrected. And that's actually what you see in the text. They jump to a naturalistic explanation of the cause, not to a supernatural explanation. Um, and so there is, there is this confusion. The empty tomb led to confusion, not to resurrection. Uh, in John 20, verses 2, and then verses 13 and 15, the women wanted to know where the body was moved to. That's what they asked. Where did you move the body? In Luke 24, 11, the disciples, once the women come back and tell them, the disciples think the women are crazy, that he's got to be there. And that's when John and Peter go to the tomb. And then Matthew 28, 11 through 15, you have the Jewish leaders accusing the followers, Jesus' followers, with stealing the body. Now, that's also interesting because they are tacitly admitting that the tomb was empty. Right? They're not trying to say, well, he's still there. You guys just went to the wrong tomb or something like that. No, they're, they're agreeing that the tomb is empty. They're just all offering an alternative story for why it's empty. And the way they go about that is that they blame the disciples. <clears throat> Uh, Something else here, and I touched on this just earlier, but uh, it was unexpected. No individual resurrection was was, uh, in in Jewish thinking. Um, Back in John chapter 11, John chapter 11 is the death of Lazarus. And Jesus shows up four days late. Is he going to say that? I don't know. He's right on time. I don't know. Um, uh, so John eleven twenty four. There's a there's some conversation between him and Martha, and Mary, and in John eleven twenty four, uh, he says, "Don't you don't you believe that I'm the resurrection and the life?" And Mar- and I think it's Martha who says, "Yes, I believe he will be raised again at the end of time." Right, And so there's this, there's this idea of, yes, there's a resurrection, but it's not going to ma- happen in the middle of history. It's going to ma- happen at the end of history. And then everybody's going to raise, not just one single person. And so they didn't have this thought in their head that there would be an individual rising in the middle of history. And so it was unexpected to them. Um, some other things to think about really quick here. Uh, tomb veneration. There was no... 
going to the tomb and, and uh, leaving, leaving trinkets and leaving flowers and, and those types of things. There was no uh, uh, going to the tomb to hold religious ceremonies. We know that during this time period, there was about 50 uh, prophets and holy men uh, where their tombs would be venerated because their followers would come and hold religious ceremonies and, 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 and just uh, decorate the tombs. Uh, this didn't happen with Jesus' tomb. We have to ask why. It's because he wasn't there. Um, second, that the location was known by several different people. The, Jews, the Jewish leaders knew where it was because they requested a guard and a seal on the tomb. The Romans knew where it was because they placed the guard and sealed the tomb. Uh, the, the women knew where it was because they followed Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus to the burial. We think the disciples knew where it was because John and Peter at least ran to it. Um, and so several people knew the location of the tomb. Uh, third, there's the Jewish explanation, which I've already touched on, that they, they didn't deny that the tomb was empty. They just said that the disciples stole the body. And then fourth here is... Um, the Jerusalem factor, and the Jerusalem factor is simply this. Jesus was arrested, beaten, flogged, crucified, and buried all in Jerusalem. If you're going to make up the resurrection, where's the last place you want to start preaching that Jesus is risen from the dead? In Jerusalem, right? It doesn't make a lot of sense uh, because it would be easy to disprove and yet, that's where uh, Peter starts in Acts 2, is, is talking about the resurrection. He says, we know where David's tomb is, but Jesus isn't in his, essentially is what he says. And it would be very easy to disprove if he were lying. Okay, so that is that he was raised, and there's a lot of evidence there. There's, there's stuff that I've completely skipped over for the sake of time, uh, but there's all kinds of other, other interesting things about the, the empty tomb that can be said. Finally, what I want to talk about is that he was risen, he was seen, that Jesus was seen, and this is also going to be very brief. Uh, he was seen, he was, uh, there's 12 different passages in the scripture that talk about Jesus being seen. Um, there are eight group sightings, Anywhere from two people all the way up to 500 people in those eight group sightings. There are four individual sightings. That would be to Mary Magdalene, Paul, James, and Peter. They all had individual sightings. There were two hostile sightings. That would be Paul and James out of those individuals. Uh, because neither of them, James, his half-brother, didn't believe his half-brother was God. And uh, Paul who was going around killing people for saying that Jesus rose from the dead, was also, you can consider, a hostile witness. And then you had the one doubter, Thomas. So lots of sightings, lots of people, lots of different locations, lots of different times of day when, when these sightings happened. Um, and I can't really get into the, to the refutation of, of what's called the hallucination theory, of what skeptics say, well, that's why they saw him, because everybody was hallucinating. Uh, with, with the, there's so many different uh, scenarios and, and, and factors involved in, in seeing Jesus that the hallucination theory really is right out. 
But what's interesting is that it's probably one of the most popular alternative theories, but it's also one of the weakest supported. And if you want to know more about that, I'd be happy to tell you later. So, so uh, he, he died, he was buried, he was raised, and he was seen. These were facts and some of the supporting evidence for each of them. So then we would have to ask him what happened. What best fits? What theory, what, what story best fits all the facts? I don't know if you ever had one of these when you were a kid. Maybe you still have one. Um, I like these things. But you've got that uh, little uh, pentagon shape there in the, uh, in the front there. Let's say that, that hole is all the evidence. That represents all the evidence. And all the blocks on the bottom represent all the different theories. Well, it's the, the most logical thing to do is to find the one theory that covers the most facts. And if you have a theory that covers all the facts, even better. Right? And a lot of the skeptical arguments that try to deny the physical resurrection of Jesus always leave out portions or large sections of the facts. They don't cover all of them except for the one theory that God rose Jesus from the dead. That's the only one that, that fits all the evidence. That's the only one that fits all the facts. And this, this in philosophy we call the inference to the best explanation. Um, you've got a bunch of facts. You've got a range of theories. You take the one theory that covers the, mo the broadest set of facts and you say, for right now, this is what we think it is. And the idea that Jesus rose physically from the dead and that God did it is, fits all the evidence that we have. And it doesn't feel forced. All right, so <clears throat> let me say this in, in closing here. At the beginning of our story, if we go all the way back to Genesis, at the beginning of our story, there was a tree whose fruit brought about sin and death. Now there is a second tree sitting on top of a hill of death whose fruit brings life. And that life is only realized in the context of an empty tomb. So God bless and thank you.